A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Jesse Hirsch, researcher, writer, publisher of the MetaViews newsletter, joining me uh, from your home, I guess, in Lanark County, Ontario. Yes. Good to have you on, Jesse. Uh, Today we are going to talk about, well, listen, what we did is we figured it was time to do a granular point-by-point breakdown of the CBC's operating budget, line-by-line, as it pertains... I'm just fucking with you. No, we're not going to do that. Uh, No, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about COVID-19 media coverage. The good, the bad, the infected newsrooms. Glad to have you here. My pleasure. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to everybody by Peter Froza, Marion Pape, Jessica McPhee, Robert Mall, Lauren Sutherland, Paul Hankus Drilsma, Thomas Kromka, and Ian Reeves. I'm a policy analyst in Ottawa, Ontario. I've supported Canada Land for the last few years because on top of the great work that you do uh, every week just discussing the media, you've grown exactly in the way that you said you were going to by focusing on bringing more alternative voices into my ears every week and challenging me, but also by doing some great investigative work, in particular uh, the investigative work into money laundering, housing prices in Vancouver, and the work in Thunder Bay. TSX falling more than 1,700 points, its worst day in decades. Ontario becomes the second province to declare a state of emergency. It is in response to the growing number of COVID-19 cases. All non-essential travel between the two countries will cease. Part of the new restrictions, the Prime Minister says any Canadians who are abroad and have COVID-19 symptoms will not be allowed to board flights home. He's urging people to do their part to help slow the spread. Jesse, I don't know, big picture, I kind of feel like the media is not doing a terrible job in Canada. I don't know, I think our news organizations have been fairly measured and responsible, and I'm thinking about how that does make a difference, because I'm just hearing from a lot of people with relatives in the States talking to their family there and just getting the sense that, like, they are not taking this seriously, especially older people And, you know, yes, they've got a president who has, uh, you know, in early stages encouraged them not to take this seriously. But they also like there was this video going around from Fox News just showing this absolutely irresponsible coverage a week ago and contrasting that with what the same talking heads are saying now. And they were absolutely politicizing it. They were taking their talking points from the Trump administration. They were calling this a partisan plot against Trump. And then you compare that with now when they've all obviously fallen into line, as has their president. And they're all saying, "Okay, let's listen to public health officials and take this seriously. This is yet another attempt to impeach the president. 
And sadly, it seems they care very little for any of the destruction they are leaving in their wake. We must test for the virus in order to stop the spread of it. What could be a very great recession, some predicting even a depression. We're going to call out anyone and everyone who's using this virus as a political weapon against the president. The standard flu every single year kills tens of thousands of Americans. We are now entering what will be the crucial defining 15-day period as it, as it relates to this virus, where we must slow the spread of coronavirus. Those fuckers will have blood on their hands for their initial coverage of this. And if there's a difference in Canada, I would say it's because we haven't politicized this like that. The media has been encouraging people to take this seriously by and large, listen to public health officials, and there are exceptions and nuances to that applause for our media, which we will get into. But do you agree with that assessment? Do you think that we're getting like basically decent and responsible information? I certainly agree with the comparative analysis that, you know, the American news establishment has, has been a travesty when it comes to either being independent from the White House or being tied to the science and public health officials behind this. But I'm a little more cynical when it comes to Canadian media in that I think everyone is going to have blood on their hands. I think given that we knew about this in early January, I, while I do think it's been fantastic that the Canadian media has refrained from the political or partisan ideological takes, I think what we've seen is a great deficit because the Canadian media does not employ enough science reporters. They don't mm -hmm. employ enough health reporters. And the people who are employed don't have enough scientific literacy. I think Canada's late. I think we should have shut everyone down. I think we should have had everyone isolating two weeks before we did. And I think that difference is going to be blood on our hands here in Canada. Far better than the United States but given what we saw in China, given what we saw in Europe, I think that we were late. I think that we were slow. And I think it's very much because the scientists were not being listened to. The, the public health authorities were not empowered in the way that they should have. And that I, I think it was a kind of a sudden panic that we saw last week. Two weeks earlier, I was telling all my friends, hey, you need to go shopping and you need to do it now. And that's just because I was reading the scientific press and I was reading a lot of the information that was out there. And, and it disappointed me greatly that the Canadian media waited as long as they did before sounding the alarm. And I think the big mistake that they're still making is they're using the word weeks when we should be talking about months because that's what's going to happen. And I think because there isn't that scientific literacy, there isn't that same confidence to raise the alarm. And so while I agree they're being responsible, I don't think that they're being alarmist enough because I think the science really merits it. Yeah, there's just this really difficult challenge of trying to keep a cool head and be calm while being like truthful given the way things are going. And I don't want to fall into the same thing that I've criticized uh, the media for so often, which is because there's some marginal improvement over what we're doing over the states, we're doing great. So I, I hope you're wrong, but I fear you might be right that our coverage is not alarm. I guess alarmist in that like ringing alarm bells, you know, the facts will carry this. And I, I'll, I'll take a moment to applaud some of the factual coverage that I think has helped us, you know, like really like trying to do a mass education effort, you know, like what does flattening the curve mean? Like we really try to have to reduce these to simple digestible things. I mean, for me to get it. And um, the government is not always incredibly helpful with that. Patricia Trouble at McLean's wanted to uh, get the information from the government, not just about like how many people have it, but just charting day by day, what is the growth being? What is the spread being? And whether it's through uh, an unwillingness to let that be known or just that they're, they're not that great at conveying information, the government web pages that update constantly didn't have archives and she was unable to actually get them to release archives. So uh, working for McLean's, she used the Wayback Machine to take snapshots of those uh, government reporting pages at different points in time and was able to actually show a, uh, a chart of how, what kind of a, of a trajectory we're going on and whether or not we are flattening the curve uh, to keep infection levels within what the health system can sustain. But even in that, like, I wonder sometimes... You know, we've all seen the flattening the curve graph where it's nice and neatly laid out. Like here is the nice flat curve where we're within the resources of the medical system. And 
it kind of freaks you out when you have some other people being like, that's a great concept and that's a nice way to convey it. But in fact, the capacity of our healthcare system is way beneath that flattened curve. It's basically running at capacity during normal times. So I wonder when you're kind of like, is our job to inform people or is it to try to shape behavior? And in order to shape their behavior, you kind of have to reassure them that it is possible to get this at beneath capacity when it just might not actually be possible. And really what we're doing is how much beyond capacity are we going to get? Well, and I think the larger argument of flattening the curve is is minimizing the damage. And on the one hand, I think because we did not invest in scientific or health literacy, that's why even someone like yourself, who's really well-informed, who's an active news consumer, still has a bit of a learning curve to climb. And I think that's a result of the media always thinking that science and tech was marginal, that it, it really wasn't part of the main staple of news. But you're also right in pointing out that the governments, the public health authorities, have never had the resources to collect and share data in a way that now clearly matters, especially when it comes to giving the public a sense of why this matters and what an exponential growth curve is. But it's it's also small stuff. Like we've known, for example, based out of the research coming out of China, that the majority of infections are both airborne and are coming from people who do not show symptoms. Mm -hmm. So we've been focusing on identifying symptoms like fever and a cough, when the reality is that this is being spread by people who don't have symptoms. And there's community transmission that's been happening in Canadian cities now for potentially a couple of weeks. You know, the Ottawa Public Health uh, Director only announced that on the weekend, but it was kind of clear that they had been wanting to say that for a long time, but they weren't allowed. And that's where in the United States, we literally saw public health officials muzzled by the government. I don't think that happened here in Canada, but at the same time, we were not allowing those public health officials to speak their mind. Because I think if they did, they would have been more alarmist. It would have then allowed journalists to ask them questions and to go through these scenarios and translate that for the public. So I think it's been a communication breakdown right across the board. Granted, I think Canada is responding faster than other countries once they realize that their initial hopes or that their initial projections were not accurate. And that is, this was, in fact, much worse than we had planned. But I still think today, as we're having this conversation, that the majority of Canadians still think that this is like the flu or it's going to go away in a couple of weeks when, you know, the scientists are saying quite the opposite, that this is going to last for months, that many people are going to die, that the healthcare system is going to be put under tremendous strain. And I think the longer we defer having those sober conversations, the more alarmed people are going to be, the more chaos there's going to be. And this is why I'm frustrated that these conversations were not happening in late January, early February when they ought to have been. Well, hold on a second, because you're making a big assumption there that those would be sober conversations. Like, I have never felt more of a sense of a responsibility about uh, the information that I put out there because, you know, like taking the example that you just brought up, it's already more extreme than our response what happened in China, where they tried to, you know, take people's temperature before you get on a bus, take people's temperature before you come back into your building. And as soon as you show signs, you're immediately isolated. You know, in a Canadian context, we have an idea that China can do that, but we have an, a commitment to civil liberties that makes that much more difficult. You're actually suggesting something even one step beyond that, which maybe the facts bear out, which is even when you're waiting for somebody to show symptoms, it's too late. The communication happens before that. So that would lead us to a discussion of, of a whole different level of quarantining and curfews, which, you know, perhaps we're heading in that direction. From a media perspective, I would hesitate to start ringing bells that people should be very afraid of, of getting it even from asymptomatic people when there isn't any kind of government plan in place, because you're assuming that people will meet that information soberly and organize based on that. But if suddenly you say any level of exposure is uh, potentially like, I don't know, I'm wrapping myself in pretzels because that's also true. And the fundamental responsibility is to tell people the truth. But I do think we have, like, I, I'm just very cautious about, I don't want to tell people true things that's going to make everybody freak out and make things worse. And I want to be 100% sure that I have the truth in hand before I, I start mouthing off on platforms where I can reach a lot of people. I think the false assumption with that logic, while on the one hand, it is responsible to 
to make sure that the media doesn't create unnecessary panic. I think the false assumption is that the government's going to come up with a plan or that the government's going to come up with a plan in a reasonable time frame. When I, instead, I think it's the media's responsibility to engage the public so that we can come up with a plan of our own without waiting for the government. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, that could involve a ramp up of available scientific information. So you're not reporting on speculation, but you are sharing the debate that is happening in scientific circles. And I don't think it has to be as extreme as China in terms of mandated quarantine. But we could have said a month ago, everyone needs to stay home. Everyone needs to start working from home. Only leave the house if you really have to and start practicing social distancing where, you know, you don't stand with other people. We should have shut down restaurants and bars over a month ago. We should have shut down, you know, event venues and museums and art galleries. These were all things that would have been prudent, that dramatically could have limited infection. And I think that they could have been done on a voluntary basis if the media was effectively educating people as to what scientists were finding and as to what preventative measures could dramatically limit its spread. Because I think that's where we really made a mistake. And as a result, there are people who are going to die because of the community transmissions that happened in the country. Well, Jesse, you know, credit where it's due. Like you sent out a newsletter on on March 4th. Uh, The title was The Calm Before the COVID-19 Storm. So it's not like the ideas of uh, social distancing were unavailable to us before we started taking it seriously. I didn't really, that didn't get through my skull until like a week ago or something like that. So, you know, that, that was out there to be consumed as information. I guess where I raise an eyebrow to your analysis is like, you know, you brought up at the beginning, like what does one do with that information uh, on March 4th? You go shopping. And you're saying, no, we could have actually organized, self-organized without authoritarianism to implement social distancing on an ad hoc, you know, and it only works if we all kind of do it. I kind of doubt that everybody would have would have done that. And, and like what level of buy in? I think, that you know, I don't know if we need authoritarianism, but I do think we need authorities at times like this. And uh, I fear that you're right, that they that they got through to us late and that they spoke up late. I also want to just raise before we, we uh you know, I know that you're through your writing over the years, as I have been uh, concerned about authoritarianism, and I know that they're using like cell phone data in other countries to track like if they know that somebody has it, those vectors are really important. I want people who have it to be quarantined and you can use cell phone data to see who has been in contact with those people and you can then go and quarantine those people. And that is an effective containment measure. But I also know, as you do, that once you uh, allow something like that to happen, a warrantless tracking of of everybody with uh, the ability to actually like take away your freedom and quarantine you, even though I would probably support it in this instance, I have like a terrible fear about like, I know that, that scaling back those types of authoritarian powers is a very difficult thing to do. So I don't know, all of this is coexisting. To your point, I don't think they're ever repealed. Right. I mean, the muzzling of the civil service under the Harper regime was not repealed under the Trudeau regime. The the Canadian civil service is largely still unable. They're not allowed to speak directly to Canadians. And that's partly the frustration when it comes to a public health crisis like this, is that you do want the experts in government being able to speak directly to the people and not have to go through the minister's office or not have to go through the comms people. And, you know, your point about using uh, cell phone surveillance and mobile data surveillance, that is going to happen in North America. The the United States government has already started that process in the United States. I very much expect a similar process to happen here in Canada. And it's very clear to me that one of the primary outcomes of this crisis will be pervasive surveillance, whether that's done purely for health purposes or whether that's done for political economic purposes. The same way that the terrorism of 9-11 resulted in the Patriot Act and resulted in a dramatic erosion of civil liberties, this is absolutely going to result in the same thing. And that's partly why I'm frustrated that we waited so late, because if we were better at responding earlier, if the media was better at public health education, we would not feel such a need to resort to surveillance, to resort to the types of measures that are going to be necessary to mitigate this conflict. And to your point, they're going to be permanent because today it'll be, you know, uh, COVID-19. A few years from now, it'll be another health threat. So we're going to enter into greater surveillance out of the belief that it might address this health crisis. But unfortunately, all that surveillance will become permanent. 
Well, look, let's not be fatalistic. You know, some things it might be too late for some, but legislation, you know, uh, parliament being called back in to session, which we're hearing is going to have to happen because in order to transgress over our charter rights, you need to have uh, parliament's consent. Uh, so, there, you know, can we have a public debate? Can we have journalism that informs that public debate? Can we limit the, the power grab that we're about to see from the state? That is still a live question and one that the media has a lot to do with. I don't want to fiddle here about the details, but I do think that it is important to applaud good work as people are trying to educate the public. I think that things like the incredible data visualization from the Washington Post was uh, an absolutely a step in the right direction and cutting edge journalism as well. Why outbreaks like coronavirus spread exponentially and how to flatten the curve was, you know, I think that's going to win awards for conveying and educating the public on scientific concepts uh, in an engaging way. I think that, uh, you know, Canada Land, former editor Jane Litvinenko is doing God's work in debunking misinformation, not in the Canadian context, because even though she's Canada based, I believe still uh, BuzzFeed doesn't really do Canada coverage anymore, but it's still, you know, misinformation knows no boundaries. You know, I'll reflect on this a little bit, Jesse, because it's it's not just like the media misinformation that we have to look out for right now. Like, you know, I never thought I'd find a time when like uh, an Oprah getting arrested uh, for uh, alleged child, a QAnon hoax story would be a welcome distraction. <laughs> That's the kind of misinformation that I want to see because actually health-based misinformation is so much more dangerous right now. But, you know, misinformation, it's like we, we have this kind of like fake news boogeyman and it's always this pernicious idea. I'll reveal something about myself. I'll confess, uh, like the other night, I we're all just glued to information. And there's not that much information, you know? And so we're just spinning and we're trading stuff back and forth and just seeing how contagious it is. I received word the other night, you know, in a friend's Facebook post that they had a connection to somebody in government and they have it on good authority that uh, the next morning, Trudeau and Doug Ford were going to shut down everything but groceries and uh, pharmacies. And uh, that this person was gassing up, taking cash out of the banks. So the implication there was that uh, banks would be closed, uh, gas stations would be closed, and they, and they were doing their, their final stocking up shopping. Because even though grocery stores would be open, you know, they would be the only things open. So, so get it done now before it, it becomes a germ trap of a greater magnitude. And I read that, and then I, I heard a similar thing from somebody else. And then I heard a similar thing from somebody else. And all three people said that they had an insider who was telling them this. And, you know, one, two, three trend, like that's not the same thing as journalistic verification. They, they could have all been getting that from the same place. But it was enough for me to feel like better safe than sorry. I better do those things, too. And I had resisted the urge to do any of this kind of panic shopping. I don't think I was I was telling myself I'm not panic shopping. This might be the last chance to get gas. And I don't I didn't even think it through. Like, what do I need the gas for? Where the hell am I gonna go? I'm like, I don't have <laughs> I don't have a cabin in the woods to like hide from this, you know. But no, just the responsible thing to do is to go get cash and gas and you know, cans of beans. And uh, I really kind of spun out a little bit and it was hard for me to modulate what the responsible thing from was from with the freak out. And then I, I, it's not like I did this haphazardly. I really agonized over it, but then I thought I felt selfish for having this information and not sharing it. So I shared it with staff. I said, this is unverified, but like, maybe you want to do some last shopping now. Uh, and it all turned out to be false. I had bad information. I'd received it and I spread it. And I was uh, measured enough not to spread it on my channels as a journalist. But it really made me just sit down and catch my breath and just be like, I need to just like keep a cooler head here because no one is trying to make a buck off of me by misinforming. Everybody's just trying to help each other here. But this can get out of control really quickly. And what was interesting about that particular rumor was how widespread it was. I mean, it, it that morning I went out and got some lumber because I was expecting hardware stores to close. The people at the hardware store were all assuming that they would close I mean, everyone believed that the entire society was about to be shut down and there was absolutely no basis for that rumor. And I think it speaks to your point about why we should be celebrating good journalism, why we should be really encouraging the type of good journalism, especially the debunking of fake news and disinformation, because now is when it's most vulnerable. Now is when that type of fact checking and that type of deciphering what is real and what is not is, is so crucial so where I have been critical of, you know, the media's sort of inability to get up to speed, I think now that we're there, there's a lot of really important work to be done. Because let's also not forget that most people are not news consumers, right? The fact that you and I and most of your listeners are the types of curious people who actively want to learn about their world, we are no longer the norm. 
that most people do not consume news. They consume Facebook, so they're getting the rumors, they're getting what everyone else is saying, but they don't listen to CBC, they don't read the Globe and Mail, and I think that's where we are most vulnerable as a society. I think that's why we saw the panic buying of toilet paper, because no one actually needed the toilet paper, but it was that monkey see, monkey do, where you see the next person buying toilet paper, so you feel you need to buy toilet paper. So I, I think now more than ever, we need good journalism. We need uh, sure. the type of media resources that go beyond the echo chambers and filter bubbles and reach the general public because there is a lot of fear and there is a lot of disinformation. And, and now more than ever, we need accurate reporting to understand what the government's doing and what options people have. Jesse, while I was gassing up my car at like, I don't know, 11.30 p.m. at night, there was like another dad uh, at the pump next to me who was like at the 7-Eleven, like, you might want to go in there and just buy a few bags of milk because uh, my buddy in the Ford government tells me it's it's all shutting down first thing tomorrow morning. <laughs> and I'm like, like nod, fellow dad. Like, I never felt better about my decisions. Like, you know, we're helping each other. And I went in there and I got milk and I figured, well, it's all going to be closed tomorrow. So I'm having a Slurpee. And uh, that's how I coped. I agree that we need uh, we need good journalism, and, and I think we need it is it is worthwhile to name and shame bad journalism. And it's also just like um, you know, last night Facebook had they claimed a glitch, and any post about coronavirus was getting censored off of Facebook, and it just never made me feel like wow, have we taken a wrong step in in having to rely on this horribly managed, socially irresponsible private platform as our main pipeline for information. Not to mention that most people don't realize that it was a glitch. Everyone I'm seeing on Facebook, most people on Facebook actually think that that was Facebook's intentional policy. And so now they're scared to actually post information about COVID-19. Yeah. So it just exacerbates the problem. It does. And it, and it discredits like now you don't know what to believe. And is you know, the idea that there's manipulation where you're not just posting to Facebook and it's getting published, but somebody's making decisions and then people uh, start to distrust the good information they're getting. I think, you know, if maybe something good can come out of this, let's kick the bad actors out of our like minds, if not platforms. And it's nice to see that bullshit attempts to do the obvious, you know, Canada proud tweeting their usual juvenile attacks. Like I, I'm all for like, let's keep uh, the feet to, to the flame of Trudeau and question his leadership. But this kind of bullshit, you know, meme PM's IQ test results negative, And then they tweet with so many Canadians lives at stake. It would be nice if we didn't have a snowboard instructor running our country. eh? And it was nice to see even conservatives respond to that with a just piss off, like fuck off already. Like we, we do not need you. This is a good time for you to go and die in a corner. It's also like, you know, the standard operating procedure of some of the, the types of um, stuff we get from like blog TO shoppers, drug mart hikes prices beyond belief amid coronavirus pandemic. Uh, they did hike the prices because they are constantly bringing down the prices of toilet paper to get like uh, door crasher sales in and then bringing them back up the stuff. They responded and said, look, this is all preordained pricing. It would be nice if they uh, made everything cheap. But the idea that they were uh, gouging everybody was just like absolute bullshit. The post millennial picked it up. You know, like there's a lot of negative energy that that like I'm all for directing it at Chopper's um, <laughs> Drug Mart for legitimate reasons. But we don't need to like have ourselves incited for nothing. There, there's no price gouging. It's not true. It's not true. Well, and we joke about the pollution that clickbait contributes to our information ecosystem. But I, I think in this particular crisis, it's not ludicrous to argue that clickbait could actually cost people's lives that the last thing we need is more noise. The last thing we need is more confusion. I mean, you know, COVID-19 content is the ultimate clickbait because people are so hungry for more information. I think to exaggerate that even further is greatly irresponsible. And, and it just makes it harder for people to understand what's going on. So while I, I think there is a role for, you know, political outlets like Canada Proud or sensational outlets like Blog TO to be part of this sort of general public conversation, I do think they, they need to check themselves before they wreck themselves because not only does this lower their credibility, even in the eyes of their typical audience, but it actually does make it harder for people to understand what's really going on. And, and I think that's a real problem. 
Finally, as we talk about some of the less uh, good stuff out there, and just because I want to reassure people, like this is a tense conversation you and I are having, and I think that just kind of keeping a level head and reassuring people that some things they can count on, listeners can count on me to uh, insult Peter Mansbridge. Like... I like Front Burner, the CBC podcast, but you know there was this appearance he did on Monday on Front Burner where it was like, "Oh, everyone, like we're in the middle of a crisis. Let's turn to Peter Mansbridge uh, is feeling left out, and perhaps he, having shepherded us through so many global tragedies and crises of the past, has some sage words for us." And I think it was just a completely valueless conversation. Like he really was just like, you know, dusting off his old war stories and chestnuts of his 9-11 coverage. Well, you know, up to that morning of 9-11, we were all living, you know, in a way, a pretty, pretty good life. The Cold War was over. Soviet Union was no longer a threat. It was gone. Just Russia. Communism was gone. The big enemy was gone. And while there were acts of terror are happening around the world and various other things. Overall, we felt pretty good. And then suddenly, bang, just like that, within a matter of seconds, the world changed. Like, he doesn't know how to be interviewed. It's got to be his show. He was just stepping all over, Jamie puts on. And at some point, you know, he was just like... Uh, for the most part, it was nonstop for 40, 44 hours. I, I remember and, uh, watching you. Uh, oh, come on, Jamie. Yeah, you must have been like... Eight at the time. I just in, I was just in high school. <laughs> oh, but okay. um, anyhow, if there's something that we don't need, it's it's Peter Mansbridge right now. Where I think the clickbait is one danger. I think the self-serving smugness is the other. In that, where we don't want to get into sensational, you know, exaggerated stories for the purposes of clicks. We also don't really need to get into the, hey, we're journalists, hey, we're great, we've always been great, trust us bullshit. I think this is a great example of where trust is earned. And I think there's a lot of media organizations who, quite frankly, we should be skeptical of until they start producing the type of scientific, the type of health coverage that we expect. And I think, you know, the CBC, because they are such a large organization, they get away with both being shitty and great at the same time. And I think the shittier sides of the CBC are going to become a little more self-evident as people demand a higher quality of content and programming. <laughs> I mean, shitty and great at the same time is kind of the right way. Like when Trudeau was coming out to speak the other day for his first big presser from his uh, self-isolation, and there was just this like shot of the steps for like a half hour because the fucker like like everybody in the country was watching that and he shouldn't make people wait and just the the uh, uncertainty of like what last minute is he changing the policy it, you know <laughs> like uh is that the way decisions are getting made there's like wait let's not do that let's do this and it's one of those moments where like fellow journalists were praising Rosie Barton and Vashi Capellos for you know, basically filibustering these ridiculous moments where we're just watching, waiting for somebody to come out of some doors and they just have to fill the time. I always find it ludicrous because the posture of uh, cable news is like, you know, authority and information at all times. We don't have any information right now. And our authority, like, we're just the same as you wondering when this guy's going to come out the door and why the fuck is he keeping us waiting? But we will just talk and we will talk and talk and we will cycle through things that we've already said a hundred times. And that is like, I can simultaneously acknowledge and praise their skill at kind of just keeping the wheels turning while I also recognize just how absurd this is. And like, you know, wouldn't the thing to talk about right then be like, well, we're wondering what you're wondering. Why is he not coming out? I kept expecting him to pull like, we know that he can fall down a flight of stairs as an act of physical comedy. So I was expecting him to do one of those Willy Wonka entrances uh, where, he, where he, <laughs> he comes out hunched over a cane sickly, but then does a flip and he sheds the cane and pops up and everything is good. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. 
It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Jesse Hirsch, there are a lot of things out there that are not getting the attention that they deserve because we are just monofocused on uh, coronavirus. And uh, maybe we still have the ability to duly note them. Do you have something for us today? I do. And it very much ties into our general conversation and some of the comments you made as an aside, especially with regard to Facebook's power when it comes to how we get our news and information. And that's the regulation of artificial intelligence. Over the last two months, the Canadian Federal Privacy Commissioner held a consultation that was open to all Canadians that included a number of really radical suggestions in terms of how we deal with artificial intelligence, whether it includes automated decision-making, which is already happening now in terms of, let's say, who will get access to a ventilator in a hospital, or when it comes to data collection practices and the way that that data will be used, which will definitely play out in terms of the increase of health surveillance. And as far as I know, there was not a single media outlet in the country that either talked about this consultation, talked about the issues in this consultation, let alone tried to educate the public as to how they could participate in this consultation. This is the first time that the Canadian government has openly talked about artificial intelligence needing regulation, how it ties to privacy. I mean, part of the thrust of this consultation was looking for an upgrade to our privacy laws. They haven't been updated for a few decades. Obviously, technology has changed quite a bit, but it also includes the regulation of social media and how responsible these platforms should be for the content that they host and publish and amplify. So given how important these issues are to especially a society that's all now at home and connecting to work and society via the internet, I think it's important we talk about AI and what laws or rules should govern AI. Thankfully, the Privacy Commissioner started that conversation, but it was almost as if the media as a whole completely ignored it. Duly noted. Boy, do I feel dumb with what I have to bring here. That was important (laughs) stuff. Listen, uh... As we know, we can't congregate for entertainment that has big financial impacts. It has big cultural impacts. It's just weird stuff happening, like just not seeing people together in all these different media contexts. But nothing is affecting me more than this. This WrestleMania match is going to accomplish what should have happened six years ago. Ending the existence of the most overhyped overvalued, overprivileged WWE superstar in existence. <laughs> Yowie, wowie! <laughs> Holy cow, John. That is seriously riveting stuff, man. I mean, you had my attention. <laughs> and just so you know, I'm really glad you're here. So, of course, those were two wrestlers in a WWE SmackDown ring context. But 
without an audience jeering and, and cheering and without the music and without it ending like I guess they can't touch each other either so they didn't they didn't actually wrestle at the end and you know Cory Doctorow pointed this out on Boing Boing as like wrestlers without audiences doing smack talk is like absurdist theater it's like Samuel Beckett and it, it left me with it left me with like an actual deep appreciation for those two gentlemen as dramatic performers duly noted Jesse, the last thing I want to talk with you is kind of the uh, the insider staffing labor side of the media question during all of this. You know, listening to The Daily, who've been doing fantastic coverage, we heard their health reporter give one of those like ads for The Daily where he talked about just the legacy of The New York Times. Like we did not miss a day of publishing through the Spanish influenza, you know, the outbreak after outbreak, health crisis after health crisis, war after war, we publish every day and we will publish throughout this. And my heart filled with pride and I felt like that's the job and we've committed to not interrupting our publishing schedule. In fact, we're publishing more over here and, um, you know, not trying to um, aggrandize myself. I think that is a widely felt ethic in newsrooms across this country. But I do think that we have to balance that with the health of our staff and there's no award for acting in a socially irresponsible way and getting everybody sick. And we are keeping a close eye as uh, a media watchdog organization on the policies of different newsrooms as they deal with this. Is this something that you're, you've been plugged into at all? Have you, have you given any thought to the kind of dynamics of uh, the workplace issues around media production? I think it is a very difficult issue. And in particular, as you mentioned, you're balancing not just the health of journalists and, and uh, staff themselves, but the people that they communicate with. I mean, it's interesting when you see sort of reporters on the ground in places like Italy or Spain and France, they're outside and they're showing the forms that they've gotten to be outside. There is a fine line between being able to report and at the same time physically spreading the virus especially in terms of what we've learned about asymptomatic uh, transmission and the fact that it can easily be spread when you think that you're otherwise safe. I think all of this is going to put a lot of pressure on any company, but media companies in particular, to adapt to remote work, to start using internet tools as part of how you produce stories. And increasingly, you know, not expecting reporters or camera people to be on location but to be all right, maybe they're reporting from studio or as Stephen Colbert jokingly did, do the show from your bathtub. And, yeah. you know, these are the types of measures that I think are incredibly important. I was reading this morning that CBC was canceling all of their local news coverage in part because they did not want people working in offices. They wanted people to work from home. I think things like radio are relatively easier to produce remotely. Uh, TV news is a little more difficult. But I, I think if whether you treat the CBC Broadcast Center like a hospital in terms of constantly sterilizing and making sure that people are wearing masks and other protective gear, this is going to be very difficult for media organizations, in part because we don't want them to shut down. We don't want them to cease operations the way we expect restaurants and other businesses to. So I think it will be very difficult, in part because I think the likelihood of most of us getting sick is very high. I think most people, their illness will be mild in that it, it won't threaten their life and it'll be something that, you know, will be unpleasant for several days, but that they'll get over. There are a lot of people in uh, newsrooms, in media organizations who are not young, while there are others who are really quite young. And I think that demographic conflict may come into play because the young people may feel healthy, but may actually be infectious and the older people might expect the same access to work and might expect the same access to airtime and their health may not allow that or permit that. So I think these are early days in terms of setting what those company policies should be and what those uh, the nature of media production is and whether uh, media organizations are prepared or have had the training to basically do all of their work online. So I want to clarify, in case there's any confusion, something you said earlier about CBC canceling local coverage. That is specifically about local TV newscasts. And uh, I think that uh, CBC North is excluded from that. They're going to continue 
Beyond that, Jesse, I think you're right that this is an interesting occasion where what it's pushing us towards are some trends that were already at work. Like, you know, I think that a lot of media production were realizing like, wow, you actually can do a lot of the stuff from home. And a lot of the stuff that you have to be in studio for, like uh, this kind of constant uh, flow of television coverage, whether or not you've got any information, uh, which I've always felt was low value media interspersed with with things that are, you know, when we can't turn away from it. But most of the time it's just wheel spinning. You know, that's a lot of resource. A lot of money goes into that. And now add to that that it's like the least healthy thing to have everybody in the studio together. Do we need that? Is Is that the best place for our resources? I think that like it's interesting to see newspapers realize like we, they've always got social responsibility to get information out to as many people as possible. They're dropping their paywalls because that social responsibility has never been higher. So you're seeing the logical extreme of your responsibility to the public is to not put a paywall between information and the public. And then I expect them all to remind us of that after this is done, if this is done, to say, hey, please subscribe to us anyhow, or even throughout this to say, just because we're not forcing you to pay us for this content, you should still, you should pay us because we're, we're I mean, th- this is, it's another conversation that we'll have, but how media is going to endure this and recover from it when we were already in such terrible shape as, as an industry uh, is, is a big concern. I think people are willing to support media that doesn't have paywalls, um, maybe in a way that they weren't if the media proves itself to be to be uh, worthwhile and responsible. So like all of these trends or collaboration, Steve Lauderanti, former CBC executive out of Scotland, he announced that uh, the broadcast organization he is uh, in a management position with out in Scotland is now doing what media organizations have been encouraged to do for a long time, which is like releasing it with a open license and uh, allowing others to copy and paste stories and build on them. There's a lot more collaboration happening between news organizations right now. We're involved in a collaboration right now uh, for some of the reporting that we're doing. So it's it's pushing everything in the right direction and in the direction that uh, that I think a lot of people have been advocating for for a long time. One thing that I want to put out there, Jesse, like it's serious, especially with TV production, you know, like two global news employees in Toronto tested positive for COVID-19. And we published a letter that we received that was sent to global, to all staff of global from Toronto Public Health, informing them that they may have been in contact with an infected person or two. So I know that Media organizations are doing their best at the management level, and a lot of them are releasing information about their policies and trying to let people work from home. But there's a lot of nuance in that. And we are receiving information from employees that the rules for staff employees are not necessarily the rules for casuals or freelancers. We're finding out that uh, a lot of the decision-making is done ad hoc on a manager-by-manager basis. We are hearing from people in media who are saying that they are being asked to put themselves in unsafe positions. We're going to be very careful. We don't want to shame people who are just trying to do their best, but we also want to report on how media organizations are handling this and whether the way they say they're handling this is consistent with what's actually going on. And the only reason why I'm not sharing the details of this right now is because we're still doing the reporting and making sure that what we've heard is true. We need a lot more information. So uh, to the journalists out there, the people who work in media organizations, please let us know and documentation, emails. But if, if it's something that, was, that happened verbally, we want to know about it too. We'll protect uh, your keep you as a confidential source if that, uh, for obvious reasons, is needed. Please get in touch with us at editor at canadalandshow.com. And I think that that's incredibly important in part because there, in, in this confusion, I think where people mean well, there is still the pressure to get the story. And, and that's always been part of the culture of journalism, that there is a bit of self-sacrifice. There is a bit of self-harm because there is a commitment to the greater good. But that can't be at the expense of the health of the people who who work there, especially people, as you mentioned, who do not have the status or do not have the profile and are perhaps uh, more easily subject to the type of coercion that has them working in unsafe conditions. So I do think that you should name and shame. At the same time, to your point about uh, uh, how important collaboration is, I think one of the potentials or one of the benefits of collaboration is it can help uh, balance off the deficit in scientific and health literacy, where not all media organizations have the capacity or the budget to be able to have people on staff with the necessary scientific literacy. I think that's where collaboration can help that. 
I think that's where, you know, the Andre Picards of the world, some of the other people, I mean, Maureen Taylor has been sort of brought back to CBC on uh, Wendy Mesley's show. I think that there are people out there who have both the journalistic skills and the scientific literacy. And, and those are the types of resources that should be shared across properties so that we can improve the the level of reporting and we can do a better job of translating what the scientific research is telling us so that the general public can understand what's going on. Well said, Jesse. Uh, and that's our episode for today. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jesse. Listen, we are feeling uh, the economic uh, repercussions of this already, as is everybody. So if you ever thought about supporting us, it has never been easier. Just look at the link in your show notes, click on it, and you can give us five bucks a month and you'll get ad-free versions of Canada Land every Monday and Thursday. And that is in Canadian dollars. You can also go to canadalandshow.com slash join to do that. You can also, if you're looking for something distracting and interesting to listen to, listen to uh, the new season of Commons. It is all about radicals, and the first episode is about a failed neo-Nazi coup of a tropical island. And our show Cool Mules has a new episode out this week, and it's worth your time. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I am reading everything you send in. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Jesse Hirsch, where can people find you, and where can they sign up for your newsletter? People can find me via jessehirsch.ca or jessehirsch on Twitter, and they can find my newsletter via metaviews.ca. Our website, once again, is canadalandshow.com. We are publishing something called uh, The Isolation Interview. We've never been more apart from each other, and yet we are all facing the exact same crisis. And so we're just talking to different people about how they're doing during this crisis. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.